Um, I've got with me hot water and lemon. I'm croaky. Um, I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll see how we go. It's great to be with you. My name's Ash, um, part of the pastoral team here at Christchurch. You are really welcome. Good to see you all. Uh, particularly this week, like Jude said, it's been a, it's been a funny week, hasn't it? Not, ju- not just Trump getting elected. I was listening to last week's sermon, um, but not all of it. And this is quite crucial to the little, little story I'm going to tell just now. I was in the back uh, doing the kids' work, and the door kept opening and closing because kids... Can't stay in one place for more than a couple of minutes, can they? And all, the only line I got with any continuity was just Paul's soft, slightly Liverpoolian influenced accent saying, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. And I was like, oh man, yeah. And then the door would open again and then I got it again. It's meaningless, isn't it? And I thought, no, is it, is it, all? Is it all? Is it all meaningless? I was a little bit, bit worried. And then uh, Jude was listening to the sermon um, at home on Monday morning, and I was rushing around. I was late for work, as is often my way. Kept running in and out of the living room, and the only line I kept getting was, same again, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. And I was thinking of our good congregation and where they might be in their lives, and just this refrain that keeps coming back. That the Bible, it's in the Bible. It's meaningless. It's all meaningless. And then I'm driving on my way to work. I'm late on Monday morning, and I put the radio on. And do you know that way local radio stations, sometimes it's just all... They've got the same story. They're just saying the same thing. You kind of flick through. It's just all the same news, isn't it? They were going on about Blue Monday. Did this pass you by, Blue Monday? Did you get, did you, did you hear that? Did that come your way, Blue Monday? Blue Monday is the day, well, it's the most depressing day of the year, apparently. Statistically, I don't know what this means for us as human beings, but it's statistically the most depressing day of the year. I guess what's happening is, well, it's the weather, the weather's bad, and after Christmas, we kind of realize the weather's bad. But we've kind of subconsciously, and I'm generalizing here, we've put all this energy into Christmas, all this focus, kind of family time, that'll be great. We'll eat loads, we'll get loads of presents. New Year can come, we can make some resolutions. You kind of massive big energy shift towards Christmas, and Blue Monday is kind of the realization of the fact that actually all the problems that we kind of had before Christmas, before this brilliant distraction, are all still very much with us. It's just that we've put on a few pounds and we've got a bit less in our pocket. And what happens on Blue Monday, and there's only ever one reason that somebody announces a day, it's all about money, isn't it? What happens on Blue Monday is this is the most likely day of the year that somebody's going to go and book a holiday. And maybe as those conversations come up in your house in the last couple of weeks, oh, we're fed up, we need to book a holiday. And it's just that sense, and I think it's really helpful actually with what we're thinking about, that sense that Christmas, even though it was awesome, it was good, It's just like a fleeting thing. And life kind of comes back around and the problems that are there remain with us all the time. They stay with us. And kind of what what Blue Monday reveals to us is just that Christmas didn't cut it, New Year's distractions didn't cut it, and actually just that chasm of the problems that were always there just kind of resurfaces again. And you say to your wife or your partner or your husband or your dad, we need to book a holiday or I need to go and spend some money. We, we rush. We rush to fill the gap. And this is kind of where Solomon's at. So it's the text from last week, so it's not up this week, but I'll read it to you. And he's, you know, I think it's, it reads like a midlife crisis. I've been reading through over and over again in Ecclesiastes, and I guess I'm getting there. I don't know when the official age is for a midlife crisis, but I don't know. I'm 37. I have got ambitions for a motorbike. Sheds are looking really cool right now. I feel like it can't be that far down the line. And as I read through this, this um, book, Ecclesiastes, it seems like that's where Solomon is at. He is, he's, he's heading towards a midlife crisis. And I should just say, I'm going to say Solomon. 
So I think it's about Solomon, but some really clever people think it might not be. Some other really clever people think that it is. Some other really clever people think that he wrote the whole thing. So I like to put a name to a face, so I'm going to refer to this guy as Solomon. It might not be him. If it's not him, it's somebody very like him. But I think it's probably from this end of the, from this end of the, the room, I think, I think that it's probably him. Generations come. This is him on a bad day. This is, the, this is the start of his midlife crisis, if you like. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round. And you can see him getting more. Like, this is normally a nice thing, isn't it? This is normally a beautiful thing when you're watching the sun and you, and you feel like reassured by it. And he's like, this is making him depressed. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place where the streams come from. There they return again. All these things are wearisome. More than one can say his glass is truly half empty at this point. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun, and the start of Solomon's midlife crisis seems to be upon us. It's like a Groundhog Day moment. Have you seen, just do a little gentle, one of them, nod. If you've seen Groundhog Day, have you seen Groundhog Day? I think that's pretty, I'm getting some thumbs up. Groundhog Day, it's a great film. Bill Murray, at his deadpan best, lives the same day of his life over and over again, and, and gets fed up with the fact that nothing he does matters, no matter how romantic, no matter how outrageous, even jumping into the bath with a toaster and committing suicide doesn't get him anywhere. And he's, he's depressed about that. He's like genuinely, I oh, can't believe that that suicide attempt did not work. And he's, he's just, it's, it's, it's this constant monotony of life going round and round and round. And the reason this film, I think, resonates with us is because even though we're not stuck in that scenario, sometimes life does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? Just you wake up the next day, it doesn't seem to matter what we do. Life just carries on and rolls round and round and round. And this is where Solomon is. And it's depressing him. And Solomon's not just anybody. Solomon is richest guy on the planet, smartest guy on the planet. He's got everything. And he's realizing that even with all that, death still hangs around the corner. There's injustice in the world. Rubbish things happen to good people. Searching for wisdom doesn't get you everywhere. And he is depressed. And I think crucially for the talk today, even though he's got all this stuff, he yearns for something more. And he's going to do something about it. And maybe, I don't know how, how closely you were listening to Steve as he read the text, but some, some of the stuff that he goes about doing is just incredible. He's going he's to have a blowout. He's going to party like nobody has ever parted before in their lives. Could you put the text up? Is that possible to put the text up at verse, at verse 1? I think it's verse 1. Yeah, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Excuse me, I'm going to need to do that. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. Look how depressed he is. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Remember I said it's important. This is, this is like poetic language. It's thousands of years old. Sometimes when, when text is a few hundred years old and it's poetic, like Shakespeare, it can kind of flow over our heads. Kind of. I remember sat down 
very, very vividly, I was thinking about this this week, I was sat down in my English class, and I think the English teacher did it on purpose, because she knew none of us were, were listening a lot of the time. She said, read this, I want you to read this extract from this book, I think it was Shakespeare, and I remember, I remember sitting down, and uh, it, was, it was the sauciest bit of writing I have ever come across in my whole life, if I'm really honest. But I had no idea. I'm reading through it, and it was like 15 minutes of me going through this book, and all of a sudden, the penny dropped for me, and I'm like, this is about sex. And I think I said it, I think I actually said it out loud. And I'm looking around to, to see what everybody else's reaction was, and I look straight to my friend on my left, and he's like, I didn't even need to speak. He went, yes, it's about sex. It was, it was like, and there was, there were, there were, I guess, teenage boys new to this kind of stuff, who were just transfixed with this text. But it took us all 20 minutes to figure out what it was about because the, the, the text was so distant. Let's read through some of these words again and just, just so we like, we'd bother to wrestle with them. I tried cheering myself with wine. Let's remember that this is, he's doing an experiment here to find the meaning of life. It's one thing saying, I'm going to sit back down with a period drama and have a glass of wine to sort of pick myself up. It's another thing to say, I have lost the purpose and meaning of my life, and I'm going to search for the answer in the bottle. This is where he's at. This is a guy who's strategically planned to see if he can find some happiness at the bottle, the bottle of a bottom, <laughs> the bottom of a bottle of wine. That's what he's going to do. Embrace, embracing folly. So we can, that's, like a, that's like a period phrase, isn't it? We just skip past, straight past it. Embracing folly. What the heck does that mean? Embracing folly. He has abandoned all reason and common sense. He's just gone, that didn't work for me. I've tried wisdom, tried it for a long time, and I'm still fed up. There's still loads of gaps. And he embraces folly. It's just absolute madness. He embraces folly. He abandons reason and logic with a bottle of wine in his hand. He stares into the abyss and says, I am going to party my way through this. He feels the chasm that's kind of been opened up, this sort of blue Monday chasm in his life. And he says, what I'm going to do, my remedy is that I'm going to fill it with good times. I'm going to party hard. That's what's going to get me through. I'm going to distract myself. Sometimes when we read the Bible, particularly somebody like the Apostle Paul, he pretty much just says, he often just says, this is what you need to do. Listen to this. This is what's happening. This is what you need to do. But sometimes what happens in the Bible, it doesn't just tell us what to do. Particularly in Ecclesiastes, it shows us who we are. It puts a big mirror up to us. He's not explained this passage yet. He's just told the story of somebody who is at the end of himself, at the, at the bottom of this pit, seeing the chasm of his life, finding no meaning, and he's turned to parties and the bottle. Sometimes the Bible just shows us a picture of who we are. And sometimes that's the most powerful thing that can happen to us, isn't it? And with fighting crime now, one of the tactics they've taken up is that they'll just show people the actions of their crime. They'll just take it from CCTV. You know, some... <clears throat> excuse me, I'm really struggling. Oh, but I'm good. They'll see this, like, really terrible accident. This, you know, this, like, Friday night in Wakey or in Ponte, just this scuffle. And it's, it, you know, it, it looks distasteful, doesn't it? But when that's you that's actually doing this stuff, when you've had a few bevies, and when you've got to watch it back, sometimes I'll do it with my kids. It's a really powerful technique to get them to take you seriously. You don't have to say anything else. Just talk them through what they've done really slowly. You, you went into your brother's room, you stole his 
favorite teddy and you took it into your room. Then he came in after you and you whacked him round the head with it. And you don't have to say any more than that. You've just got to tell them what they've done. And sometimes that is all the Bible does. It says, look at what you do, human beings. Look at the way that you do things. Look, you have, for a second in your life, you have got to consider deep and meaningful things. The purpose of life. And you rush to fill it with stuff. That's what we do, isn't it? This question comes around periodically. And we rush to fill our lives with as much stuff as we can. And, and this, is what, this is what Solomon does. And this is what Ecclesiastes does, I think. Which is what it makes it a really good book. And it's what, it's what is the reason that probably lots of us have put it down, including me, over the years. Because you just think, where are we going with this? Why, why does the end of the passage say meaningless? Why does he conclude with this meaningless point? And he wants us to dwell and to think seriously about some of these questions. And Solomon stares into the abyss, and he throws a party. He thinks, my life's coming to an end. Conclusion, party. And these parties, and I'm going to go to town on this a little bit. I'm going to indulge myself in this a little bit. I want you to be engaged with the passage. He goes to town on the parties. He parties incredibly hard. Do you remember? Who remembers your first disco, your first party? Can you remember your first? Further back for some than for others. I remember mine very well. Great times. Lived in Osset, Osset Sporting Boys Disco, 6 o'clock. It was a 50p to get in. Mum and Dad used to give me a quid. I think they were happy to see the back of me. I used to go up there, and it was all that really rubbish music. But, and I don't know what happened. I was about 14. I just must never have seen girls before. Just must have not ever noticed them. And maybe it was the copious amounts of fizzy pop that you can buy for 50p's back in, back in about, I don't know, early 90s, something like that. But girls, there were girls there. I'd never noticed them before, and all of a sudden they looked great. They did. They look great. When you're 14, maybe, that, maybe, that's just, maybe they all look great, but they look great. There was disco music on. I had 50 pence to spend on sweets. First ever disco. I remember thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. This is it. I don't need any more than this. I don't need, I'm, too, I'm terrified of these girls. I'm not going to go anywhere near them, but I've got great feelings going on inside me, stirred, stirred up emotions that I don't know what to do with. This is, I'll take that. I'll go home and that's fine. Then the next, next Friday night comes along and I'm thinking, well, last week was good, but I need... You know, there were guys there buying bottles of fizzy pop. I need a bit more money. And uh, there were guys there that got to actually talk to these girls, and I think they had different air to me. So I'm going to try different air. And I went back, and the next party got a bit bigger. And then three or four weeks down the line, I remember my dad clocking me on my way out saying, you got aftershave on some? you got aftershave? I'm like, no, Dad, no aftershave on it. And every party needed to get better and better and better. And Solomon's parties were like this. Solomon's parties were just the best parties ever. And, and as I studied this text in the week, I thought, man, this makes my misdemeanors in youth just look trivial. I, wasn't, I didn't get up to enough mischief. That was in the back of my mind. I thought Solomon just goes all out for it. 1 Kings 4, so if you're reading through your Bible, little study notes in the bottom if you've got that kind of Bible, will point you in this direction, <coughs> talk you through the kind of daily provisions that Solomon would have for his parties. And I'm going to have to keep drinking. My throat's just tickling away like crazy. Solomon's daily provisions. 30 cores of the finest flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer. This is a day. This is for the day. 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, I don't even know what a roebuck is, and choice fowl. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. This is 
epic parties. This is just thousands and thousands of people completely going completely nuts. Then, and this is the thing, then the hangover the next day, the cold realization that it was awesome pie, amazing pie, but next pie has got to be better because it didn't quite cut it. Goes round and round and round and round. And this is the story that we're getting in the book. And we realize, because we, we, we read through the text, that the parties didn't really cut it for him. So in the middle of his midlife crisis, he says, well, the parties haven't worked. I'm going to go for the next thing, which is where I'm headed, I think, at 37 for a project. Some bloke heading for a midlife crisis need a project, something to do. Except Solomon doesn't just have one project. He has projects. And I want you to skip through the text with me. Verse, verse 4 on. Uh, you know, cast your eye up to there. Notice the plurality of the projects that he has. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. And when you sort of place that into context, and it, certainly one of my dreams is to have a second home somewhere in Whitby or the East Coast or something like that. Never going to happen in a million years. It's a million miles away. No matter how hard I try, it's not going to happen. It's like a fairy tale. I'd love it to happen, but it's distant. Look, Solomon's building houses for himself, but that's just the start. He's planting Vineyards. We're getting this growing picture of the excesses of life. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Not just, not just the standard fruit trees. He's like going out of his way. He's showing you these are the finest trees anywhere. Get to verse 6. This is ridiculous. You ever have one of these chats with your mates when you're younger and you're talking about stuff you've got in your house and then one of them will say, yeah, my dad's got a swimming pool or something like that. Just throws that in there as if to say, yeah. I've got way more than you. And this is what Solomon throws in. He's not happy that his groves are getting watered just with a, a hose pipe or a watering can or something like that. He says, I've made not just one reservoir, reservoirs. It's like, I don't want one reservoir. One reservoir could run out. I'm not happy with one reservoir. I need reservoirs. I need to know that my, my, forest, my forest is going to be well watered. I bought male and female slaves, and had the other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And now we get to the kind of climax of the hedonism that's involved in Solomon's pursuit of pleasure. I amassed silver and gold for myself. It's like this image of this, you know, these baddies in these Disney films that can just let the treasure flip through their fingers. It's got, I amassed it. Silver and gold for myself and the treasure of the kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. Look at this guy. Male, can you imagine that? Male and female singers. You know, when, when, I'm, having a, when I'm, I'm having a bad day and I'm searching for the meaning of life, I'll do something as outrageous as eat a full packet of biscuits or watch Countdown on loop. Something like that. That's what gets me through the day. Solomon just goes, I'm having a bad day. I need a song. Clicks his fingers, and all of a sudden, some male and female singers come out. And you can imagine him, can't you? It's not good enough. I need more. Give me more songs. And, and these, these singers, and this is another occasion when we need to really read into the text, these singers weren't just singers. They could bust some moves as well. This was, this was top-end entertainment. This is ridiculous entertainment. And then we get to the, the part of the text that I think Solomon's really famous for, the bit that we will know about Solomon, and it's the women and then it's, and here's a line again that I want us just to really fire into. I got a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And we know about Solomon and his women. And he had 700 wives, which seems excessive to me. But, and 300.
300 concubines. 300 concubines. This man, and this is like the, sort of the, climax, the climactic moment of the text. This man wanted for nothing. He had everything. That's the point of the story. And we kind of skim through it. Maybe we miss it. We fire into it. We look at a guy. And you, you just hear the way that he talks in this text. I had a harem. We've been thinking about, about Donald Trump and some of the stuff that he said about women. You know, that's, that's very much in, in the social conscience at the moment, isn't he? And we're kind of outraged at some of the stuff he said. Listen to the way that Solomon talks about his exploits. I had, just like bragging about it, I had 300 concubines. Just right there. I had singers that would jump in at any moment. I had tons of stuff going on. I had projects that would make every single man here jealous. And what is the outcome of all of this? What is the outcome of it? And this is the point of the story. It is fleeting pleasure, followed by the realization of the meaningless of the pursuit of pleasure. Fleeting pleasure. Momentary not fulfilling. And what it does, and what it seems to do in Solomon's story, maybe this is true for us, it just ends up, this, this high end of pleasure, this massive human high, doesn't complete him. It only serves to expose a gap in his life. He is yearning for something more. And what's really hard to take about the book of Ecclesiastes is the author is really happy for us just to stay there he leaves us there, thinking about this, staring into the abyss, contemplating the bleakness of life, in order that you might ask, why? Why does he leave us staring into the darkness? I don't know if you can remember back to when you were a kid, and your parents might not have done this, they might have been good parents, <laughs> but this happened to me, and I, you know, I seem to have done all right, but you get a big graze on your arm, you come rushing in. You can't control yourself. You're just in a state. You're screaming. You're like, look at this. Look at this. There's blood. There's blood everywhere. And you, your dad will look at it and he'll say, you're fine. You're fine, son. Calm down. You're fine. Your mum will say the same. You're fine. It'll go back and forth. You're still not calm because you've got blood on your arm. You, you're going crazy. You're going crazy. And eventually, your dad looks at you and thinks, there's just no way I'm going to sort this out here. And he'll look at you bluntly in the eye and he'll say, right, we'll have to chop it off. That's what we'll have to do. And you, you go, what? That's not a logical next step. Just don't you love me? And what happens in that moment? in the bleakness of that moment, is that you're forced to ask the serious question. You're forced to ask the serious question. That's, that's the nature of this book. It doesn't let us away with fairy tale Christianity. It doesn't let us away with, ask Jesus into your heart, everything will be fine. It does not let us away with that. It makes us ask grown-up questions about life. It says, life is really unfair. Life can be really crap. Life can be really tough. Life can be really unjust. And you can be right in the middle of that injustice. Now, tell me, stay there, dwell in the darkness, face the reality, and tell me what you think about God. Makes us ask really difficult questions. Why does Solomon want his years of toil to mean something more than just an inheritance for the next guy? Why does Solomon want wisdom to have more value than folly? Why does it matter that throwing the best party every night for five years still leaves you feeling empty. Is life all about how much pleasure that you can cram in? And he leaves you there. And then you skip on. I wonder if you could put um, three and ten on for us, Amy. Is that possible? Just kind of leaves you there. 
leaves you dwelling there, just thinking that, yeah, life is really terrible. And, and there's just this little verse, and this is the way I think that, that he writes. doesn't bang you over the head with the message. just drops in these little clues along the way. It says this, I have seen the burden God has placed on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Drops this right in there. He says, look, here's the reason I think that you are restless. Here's the reason you can't find peace. He places in the story a proper God perspective. He says, this is his argument, so I'll lay it out there for you. His argument is, the human race has known God. Kind of points back to Genesis. You know, the stories you've read maybe as a kid or whatever about when Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. He's saying that the human race knows exactly what it's like to have perfect peace with God. In fact, it's more than just peace. If you study the Garden of Eden, that is absolute perfection. That is life at its best. That is utopia, kind of phrase that we've said before. That is the best that this world has ever been. And what the writer to the Ecclesiastes is saying is, you've known what that's like. Somewhere deep down, rooted, stuck somewhere deep in your DNA, you know what it's like to walk perfectly with God. And you're restless, and your parties, and your drinking, and everything else don't quite cut it because you've known what it's like to walk perfectly with God. That's the argument that the writer of the Ecclesiastes makes. We know deep down what it's like to belong to God. I'm going to uh, read two quotes now. One from Nietzsche. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, I, don't, I don't read him frequently, but he's, uh, he's very accessible on Google. Uh, so that's why you're getting one of his quotes. And one from C.S. Lewis, somebody who I do read a bit more frequently. <clears throat> going to kind of give us two perspectives on why we pursue pleasure. It's the last of the honey and lemon. Nietzsche says, Man contended, Man, Nietzsche contended, is a being that has leapt beyond the bestial bounds of the mating season and seeks pleasure not just at fixed intervals but perpetually. Since, however, there are fewer sources of pleasure than his perpetual desire for pleasure demands, nature has forced man on the path of pleasure contrivance. Man, the creature of consciousness, whose horizons extend to the past and to the future, rarely attains complete fulfillment within the present. And for, are you still with me? And for this reason, experiences something most likely unknown to any, any animal, namely boredom. In a nutshell, for a steady-going Yorkshireman like me, just to bring it back in the room, we pursue pleasure because of our human advancement. We have progressed, we have evolved, and now we get that pleasure is really good, so we pursue it to that end. That's Nietzsche's argument. And so I'm, I'm putting these arguments out there, and I'm not wanting just to dismiss them. I want us to be aware of the different arguments about why we would pursue pleasure. So this is Nietzsche's argument. We've evolved. We get that you can have good times, so we chase after good times. Something like that. That's probably overly simplistic, but that's sometimes how I roll. C.S. Lewis asks us to think in a different way about pleasure. He says, concerning pleasure and our pursuit of it. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires for pleasure not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So C.S. Lewis kind of makes a couple of points. But he kind of reiterates the point that is made by the writer of the Ecclesiastes that that we, we settle for sex and drugs and rock and roll, but that is just settling. God has placed in the human heart something way, way grander, and we yearn for it. He says that the pursuit of pleasure is not about human advancement. He says it's about finding God. He says we are restless for pleasure because we miss God in our lives. Something to think about. Something that Romans would agree with. Romans one twenty one would say something like this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. This is Paul being a bit more blunt and saying, you know God, human beings. You know God. You've walked with God. I guess particularly God's children in Israel, but it applies to us too. You know God. This is what he's saying. You know God, but you have settled for something else. C.S. Lewis doesn't berate us for seeking pleasure. He just says you're looking for pleasure in the wrong places. He says you don't know the half of what pleasure is. Jesus, um, on his ministry, bumped into a woman. And you perhaps know this story. The woman of Samaria. She sat at the well. And uh, so they're just talking. And she sort of says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, you, you, we don't have anything to do with each other. We've got, we've got nothing to talk about. There's no connection here. And as the story sort of goes on, what, what you find out about this woman is that she's not only thirsty for water. Maybe you know this story. But she's also yearning for something in her life. She's had, I think, I don't know, four or five husbands, and she's on the way to the next husband. That's sort of the, the picture that's been painted. This is a woman who is restless, who is yearning for something more. And Jesus sees her in this state, and what he is able to do is look her bluntly in the eye and say, I can offer you something that will mean you will never thirst again. You will never thirst again. In fact, better than never thirsting again, something will well up in you like an unnatural spring within you that will flow to eternal life. That's something like the words that Jesus uses. What Jesus is saying is something like, I can, I can take you from being a person who feels the emptiness of life, yearns for something more. I can take you from there to being somebody who is overflowing with purpose and goodness. And you can sort of imagine this, these two at the well, just saying, well, how, how does that happen? How do I do that? For that to happen, this woman needs to get that there is something bigger. Jesus says, you can't go back for pleasure to your old way of life. You can't go back to these men. You're not going to find fulfillment in these men. You need to look at who I am. You need to get who I am and how I give you access to something greater, something bigger. And this woman's life, as we understand it, changes from being a life that is meaningless 
to be in a life that is, has the opportunity to be full of purpose. And this is what faith is. It's not that everything is perfect now, but that it will be. It's not that you don't enjoy pleasure on earth, but that your ultimate satisfaction is found in God. It's not that you won't experience feeling meaningless, but you'll know where to look to find fulfillment. I'd ask you to think about that. I think one of the traumas of our lives, and I think why the book of Ecclesiastes is so helpful, is because we do, when we see the void, when the question of the purpose of our life comes round, we are so desperate to fill it up with stuff. This chasm that opens up, this question of the meaning of life, we rush straight in and we'll all book a holiday this week. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely fine. But that's kind of what we do. We think, I've got to fill this. I've got to fill this life up with something. I don't want to think about the big questions of life. Ecclesiastes says to us, stop. Dwell in the awkward. Think about this life. Is there a God? And as we see in the story of Jesus, it would ask us to abandon these like immediate pleasures and trust in something bigger. Why do we find life meaningless? Because we know there's something bigger.